At my welcome to you all, my name is Greg Durenberger, and I'm the senior pastor of Emmaus Road Church. Those visitors, and we're glad to see you all, and we'd love to get better acquainted with you. I want to invite you to open your Bibles or your electronic devices to the book of Habakkuk. And we're going to be giving our attention today to chapter 1, verses 12 to 17. Anxiety is defined as an automatic reaction to a threat, real or imagined. And God designed us this way. He created us with a strong urge for survival. So anxiety, it's helpful, I think, to think of it this way. It's a natural reaction designed for self-preservation as kind of a, what we might call a startle reaction. Anxiety is, is a means of protection, protection from potential risk or harm. So at one level, anxiety serves us by, by making us alert, makes us more self-conscious and highly motivated <laughs> to take action. But at an elevated level, anxiety can also do just the opposite. It can be a paralyzer. In fact, the word anxiety is actually derived from a word that means to choke uh, or to cause pain by squeezing. One I guess so-called expert observes, if intense and prolonged, anxiety has a strangling effect, depleting people's energy, disturbing their thinking, and dividing their loyalties. Listen to that again. If intense and prolonged, anxiety has a strangling effect, depleting people's energy, disturbing their thinking, and dividing their loyalties. It, it, it seems obvious to me that we are living in anxious times, both intense and prolonged, and one need not be an expert to recognize that, that the social fabric of our nation is depleted and disturbed and divided. I mean, describing the effect of our corporate, that our corporate anxiety has generated as squeezing or, or heavy is at least for some putting it lightly. There are in our times grave dangers confronting God's people. And we would be wise to pay attention to our own reactivity. And we would be wise to heed the good and godly counsel of those who have walked before us through such anxious seasons, anxious times. And one such voice is the 20th century preacher, David Martin Lloyd-Jones. He writes, he wrote this post-World War II height of Cold War, anxious times. He says, it, it is essential that the church should not 
view things with a political eye, that is, view things like the dangers of the times with a political eye, but learn to interpret events spiritually and to understand them in light of God's instructions to her. What to a natural man is utterly abhorrent and even disastrous may be the very thing God is using to chastise us and to restore us to a right relationship with himself. In other words, the way to address anxious hearts and minds is through a reframing of problematic events and trajectories in light of what the Bible says is true about God and about man and about history. In light of God, these things that deplete or disturb or divide are tools in God's hands to redeem and revive and restore. Another voice of in godly counsel is the Old Testament prophet Habakkuk, and it is to him and to God's word through him that we now turn for instruction in navigating anxious, troubling times with calm and courage. So I want to invite you, follow along. I'm going to read Habakkuk chapter 1, verses 12 to 17. And if you're physically able, I want to invite you also to stand in honor of God's word. The prophet prays this way. Are you not from everlasting, O Lord my God, my Holy One? We shall not die. O Lord, you have ordained them as a judgment. And you, O Rock, have established them for reproof. You who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong, why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? You make mankind like the fish of the sea, like crawling things that have no ruler. He brings all of them up with a hook. He drags them out with his net. He gathers them in his dragnet, so he rejoices and is glad. And therefore, he sacrifices to his net and makes offerings to his dragnet. For by them he lives in luxury and his food is rich. Is he then to keep on em emptying his net and mercilessly killing nations forever. This is God's holy and authoritative word. And we read it and we respond to it. And we give heed to it like no other. So let's, let's pray. Father, the, the questions raised in this text are rising from a heart and a mind that brings all kinds of assumptions about you 
and brings all kinds of anxiousness about what's going on. And we can so quickly locate ourselves in this passage. And it's troubling at one level to just be left with questions. We recognize that we live in such times when there seem to be more questions, more things unresolved than there are necessarily exclamation points and conclusions and vindication and victory for your glory and your purpose. So, Lord, these things are written for our, our instruction and they are written to engender hope. And we believe, O oh God, that it is your purpose to communicate to your people in such a way that we are governed by peace and assurance so that we would be a peaceful, non-anxious influence in the world in these anxious and troubling times. So would you accomplish this for your glory, Lord? Work among us now. We, we ask your spirit to be manifest in thinking, untangling ways. Please do this for your name's sake. And in Jesus' name we ask it. Amen. Please be seated. Well, Habakkuk was not the first person to ever ask the question, how long, O Lord? Clearly, he wasn't the last. It's, it's just part of the, the kind of the sin-warped condition of fallen humanity that that time again, time and again, time and again, situations arise which seem to demand this, this, they cry out for immediate divine intervention to make things right. And um, we go through seasons like this. But while our nation and our culture seem to plunge further and further from the standards of God's righteous will and His holy word, we're perplexed, are we not? Um, that there is little to no discernible and appropriate intervention by the Lord. Are, are you not just as troubled as Habakkuk that God appears just entirely unresponsive to the, to the craziness going on in our world? What's with all this? But... The Lord gave us the book of Habakkuk to warn us that people whose God is their own strength and whose God is their own self-reliance and their own self-will, though they may prosper for a season, they will come to a sorry end. The Lord also gave us the book of Habakkuk to provide us with a map for journeying from our own fears and anxieties to faith, whether the anxiety-inducing circumstance is personal or whether it's relational or whether it's local or national or global. The book of Habakkuk answers the question, how do, I, how do we respond when 
problems rise, and these problems don't make any sense. How do we respond to dangers, traumas that cause us to question everything that we believe about God? How do we respond when everything that defines us and that quantifies our sense of security and well-being is just slipping away or taken? And listen, this might be the most significant question this book answers. How do we respond when God and his word offer no immediate or clear solution? We know that Habakkuk had such questions. We saw last week in chapter 1, verses 2 and 3, that he prays, How long? How long must I cry until you do something? And why? Why are you ignoring such blatant wrongs? And then in Habakkuk chapter 1, verses 12 and 13, he opens his heart some more and restates his overwhelming concerns. How? How could God permit the Chaldeans to commit such extreme acts of wickedness? It's the the whole problem of God's apparent passivity toward immorality. And the second issue is, assuming that God is making the Chaldeans subject to fulfilling His purposes, why them? I mean, this is another problem, right, that we can relate to. How can a holy God accomplish holy purposes through such unholy people. It's the problem of moral incongruence. God, things are just so messed up and you're not doing anything. And if you are doing anything, you're doing it wrong. Let's look at these charges one at a time. First of all, the problem of God's to say, apparent passivity. If there is truly a God in heaven, then why would he allow unspeakable atrocities? Is he powerless? Is he so impotent? How can a real righteous God just stand back idly watching holocaust after holocaust after holocaust? Why would he endure the slaughtering of millions upon millions of unborn children? How can he suffer the dramatic moral decline of a culture that was once characterized, we'd like to think, by civility? There there are people deeply troubled that God has not done a thing about the rising influence and impact of the extreme left. He certainly could intervene. Why doesn't he? And after laying this vexing mystery on the table, the prophet cries out to God in verse 12, Are you not from everlasting, O Lord my God, my Holy One? And and you see, right there, dear friends, begins, I believe, this transformational, faith-maturing journey. There's a matrix, if you will, for the developmental process 
for each one, each and every believer, each and every believer. Because you see, Habakkuk has, has hit the pause button on directing his attention on the cause of his anxiety. And in verse 12, he has shifted his focus on what he knows to be true with regards to God. A critical starting point. Look at verse 12 again. Are you not from everlasting, O Lord my God, my Holy One? We shall not die. O Lord, you have ordained them as a judgment, and you, O Rock, have established them for reproof. Now, Habakkuk faces these, his anxious times by fixing his mind's attention on truths, unshakable truths about God. First, that God is eternal. O Lord, are you not from everlasting? Well, of course you are. Habakkuk would have been familiar with Psalm 90, verse 2, where Moses, the author of Psalm 90, wrote, Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Habakkuk was anchored in the belief that God has no beginning and no end. You can go back a million trillion, gazillion years before Genesis 1, and there he is. And he's the same yesterday, a million, trillion, gazillion years ago, as he is today, and will be a million, trillion, gazillion years into eternity future. And since God has been, and God is, and always will be, God, Habakkuk did not accept the notion that God is somehow like, oh man, he, he, you just don't know what he's going to do next. He's unpredictable, he's wild, he's fluctuating. No, he believed that God is unchangeable and unshakable and unstoppable. That's who God is, that's who he's always been, and that's who he always will be. That's the God he knew. And trusted, even though he has questions. And that's because he also believed, apparently, that God is self-existent. That is, God is independent. He has no needs. Are you not from everlasting, O Lord my God? We know that the word capital L-O-R-D, when translated in our English Bibles with all uppercase capital letters, it's the, it's the name Jehovah. It's, it's, it's just four letters. Yahweh. Y-H-W-H. That's what they put, Y-H-W-H, just consonants. wouldn't even say the name because it was so holy and revered to, that they feared to vocalize it. Instead of saying Yahweh, they would say Adonai. I am. I am who I am. 
And the reason that God is unchangeable, unshakable, unfluctuating is because God is always who He is. He's not contingent on circumstances or trouble or things that would make us anxious. Habakkuk would have been familiar with this and with Psalm 50 verses 10 through 12 where David expresses God's voice of self-existence. Every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the hills and all that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world and its fullness are mine. And Habakkuk believed that this self-existent, self-sufficient God is his God. Oh God, you are my God. Oh Lord, you are mine. I am yours. In you I live and move and I have my being. All that is yours is mine and all that is mine is yours. In your fullness, in your abundance, I have and forever will have all that I need. When our minds go there, the things of this world grow strangely dim. And that makes a difference to an anxious heart. And further, Habakkuk believed that God is holy. Fundamental to understanding God as God is understanding His holiness. For everything that God is and does starts there. The, the word translated holy has this idea of being set apart. Heaviness. God's holiness means that what He is elevates Him above, sets Him apart every from everything else in existence. There is no other. He's, he's not like he's a 10 on the scale where we're like ones and twos or threes. Um, he has no scale. There is no unit of measure when it comes to God. And Habakkuk understood that from Moses' words in Exodus chapter 15, verse 11. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? And Habakkuk believed this. And it had a governing effect on him. And he expresses it in verse 12. Are you not from everlasting, O Lord, my God, my holy one? The prophet's faith was also informed by the assertion that God is purposefully sovereign. That is to say, Habakkuk understood and believed in the doctrine of God's providence. You see, it's one thing to accept that God is reigning over everything. Yeah, he's over it all. He's in control. You know, there's no... Marbles loose on the floor any place with him. He, 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 it's one thing to believe that he's reigning over everything, including personal, cultural, political, and national and international realities. It's another thing altogether to believe that it is God who sees to it that all these things, all these things unfold precisely according to his purpose. Second half of verse 12. O oh Lord, you have ordained them. Who's them? The Chaldeans. 
You have ordained them as judgment. And you, O rock, have established them for reproof. It is God who ordained that the Chaldeans would serve as his rod of discipline. It was God who raised them. It was God who established them. It was God who made them what they were. It was God who sent them as a superpower to fulfill his purposes. They're just servants doing his bidding. Amos chapter 6 verse 14 says, Behold, I will raise up a Against you a nation, O house of Israel, declares the Lord, the God of hosts. God raises up these enemies. It's God who brings them. Jeremiah 5.15 Behold, I am bringing against you a nation from afar, O house of Israel, declares the Lord. It's God who summons them to accomplish The purpose of his will, Jeremiah 25, verse 9. Behold, I will send for Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon. These are the Chaldeans. He's my servant. (laughs) And I will bring them against this land and its inhabitants. Loved ones, there is nothing random about what happened In Habakkuk's day. And neither is there anything random about what is happening in our lives, in our world today. That does not imply passivity. Or just rolling over. Okay. (laughs) Do whatever you're going to do. But it does imply that God, God does not assert his sovereignty willy-nilly. He asserts his sovereignty purposefully, intentionally, in faithfulness to his covenant promises. Habakkuk believed this. He believed that God is faithful. God is faithful. Verse 12 again. Are you not from everlasting, O Lord my God, my Holy One, We will not die. Where does that come from? (laughs) That's an odd thing to say at that point. We will not die. God established a covenant. I will be their God. They shall be my people. And Habakkuk understood that though the eternal attributes of God, oh my, these were enough to make you melt in his presence. But he is also faithful and he's covenant keeping. And he made a promise and he would never break this promise. It was God, yes, who stirred up the Chaldeans against his own flock. But he did not send those far left extremists for destruction. He sent them for discipline. We shall not die. There will be a remnant because our Lord has a covenant purpose 
in what's going on. And our God, our Holy One, will faithfully fulfill His covenant purposes to all generations of those who trust Him. And pondering these truths about God has a way of dialing down unhealthy anxiety, the kind that you know, chokes us and strangles us and would threaten to crush us. Even today. Now, Habakkuk had yet another concern. <laughs> and that, is, that has to do with this whole issue of what I called moral incongruence. That is, how does, how does one reconcile a holy God employing unholy means to accomplish holy purposes. It's just, you know, static in the brain, right? But we get this. We get this. If, I mean, if God is all-powerful, and if he is in sovereign control of everything, so, so then how does this work? How does he justify using sinful people, doing sinful things to fulfill his Holy will. And Habakkuk raises this question in verse 13. You who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong, why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? And the, pro- the prophet is emphatic here. He, whatever else I'm certain of, <laughs> this I know to be true. God cannot even look upon evil without hating it. He is of such infinite, white-hot purity that, that he considers wickedness with infinite revulsion. And therefore, passivity toward cruelty, passivity towards injustice, passivity towards murder and slaughtering of innocents and infants. This to God is an utter impossibility. And so, why is it then, O Lord, that you look at these traitors, you look at these warmongers, How can you look at these liberals? They're sinners. And just hold your tongue. When they swallow up people who on the morality scale would be a lot more righteous than them. We ask these questions, don't we? In my life, it was, it was about 15 years ago when um, I read a little book. It was by this pastor, David Martin Lloyd-Jones, who I quoted earlier. Um, and it helped me. He introduced a little matrix, if you will. It helped me with, with the functional application of, of this vision of God and and how it helps to take steps. It, it helped me to take steps in my own process of becoming what I continue to pray 
would be a non-anxious presence. A non-anxious presence in my marriage. A non-anxious presence in our home. In the people that I lead. In the people that I shepherd. A non-anxious presence is a description of how a person is able to, to keep the center of control within themselves and, in, and as a way to affect the relationships of, around them in a positive manner. We, we emit, right? We emit a vibe. And if we emit an anxious vibe, everybody around us gets amped up. And if we emit a non-anxious vibe, well, then it just helps everybody stay calm. This is good. It's crucial in anxious times. So whether it has to do with you know, a, a personal crisis or a family emergency or an organizational meltdown or social cultural train wreck, Lloyd-Jones advocated a method into which we can grow. We can learn how to do these things slowly but surely. One by which we may move, I believe, from fear to faith. Four steps. Let me commend them to you. The first is stop and think. Re reactive people freak out. <laughs> They freak out. And then everybody else freaks out. But reactive people are quick to speak and slow to think. They shoot first and then they, well, then they think about it for a second. And then after surveying the carnage, then they aim. But Habakkuk is a model of pausing to ponder before hyperventilating. Of course there's questions. And they're legitimate questions. But the prophet takes those legitimate questions and he utilizes them to direct his focus onto productive ends for strengthening his own faith. He stops and he thinks. What does he think about? He recounts the truths that he knows that are absolutely unshakable about God. You, you see, the Christian faith is a propositional faith. Our confidence rise, rests and rises on truths about which we are absolutely certain. Lloyd-Jones put it like this. He says, in spiritual problems, I would just add, like in every problem, doesn't matter what it is, it's any and every problem, in spiritual problems, you must return to eternal and absolute principles. The psychology of this is obvious. For the moment you turn to basic principles, and this is what we mean by these propositional, unshakable truths about God, you immediately begin to lose your sense of panic. It's a great thing to reassure your soul with those things that are beyond dispute. If you know someone who just leaves a trail behind them of, of anxiety, 
you know, it, whether it's in your household or your organization, your workplace, I mean, you can be almost certain that whoever it is that's leaving this trail of anxiety, they are also untethered from anything absolute. As we make our way through Habakkuk's prophetic word, his own transformational process from fear to faith, it begins with questions, legitimate questions, he but he pauses and he ponders. And then what he ponders is recounting and fixing his thoughts on these truths about God recorded in God's word of which he is certain. God's eternal. What could be more consoling or reassuring when anxiety is rising over problems in history? And culture, you know this, you know this timeline. God's over that timeline, eternity, past and future. He's outside of history and culture. He came before it all. He, he created the nations. His reign is over it and outside of time. God is self-existent. His purposes are not contingent on anything going on in this world. Psalm 135 verse 6 says, Whatever the Lord pleases, He does. In heaven and on earth. Nobody else can say that they do whatever they please, whenever they want. What an extraordinary truth to engender calm and confidence. God is holy. Is it conceivable that the Holy One could or would ever do anything unrighteous? God is purposefully sovereign. Everything, absolutely everything, including presidents and pandemics and economies and even the Equality Act, it relates to God. R.C. Sproul often said, there are no maverick molecules. What's wrong with you people? There are no maverick molecules. Nor are there any maverick politicians or police. All things and all persons fit into God's all-embracing plan. God is faithful. He works out all things according to the purpose of His will. He will build His church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Recount the things that we know that are true about God. And then apply the truths we know to the problem. That's exactly what Habakkuk does. All these unshakable truths about God that he knows and has recounted, they're functioning. They're getting things done in him. They draw him to this confident conclusion. Look at verse 12 again. O Lord, you have ordained them as a judgment. That's what you're doing. Huh. Oh, rock, you have established them for reproof. The why question is answered. The Chaldeans haven't taken the law into their own hands. They haven't gone rogue outside of God's plan and purpose. They are a tool of the Lord for something to do within and under the entire purpose of God's covenant. He's raising them up. 
ultimately for the joy of his people and for the glory of his name, the exaltation of his faithful promises. There's one more step. And I think this is crucial for us. This is, this is the one, this is the most significant question that I think that we're least patient with. And that is, if there's still doubts, and there are, <laughs> there will be, if there's still doubts, we commit the problem to God in faith. Habakkuk chapter 1 verses 14 to 17, it, it, you know, it really doesn't provide ultimate resolution for our, you know, our finite little nuggets. R rather, the chapter ends with yet another question. You, God, make mankind like the fish of the sea, like crawling things that have no ruler. <laughs> One of those spontaneous things that comes into my head. As I've been, I was reading this biography yesterday of Winston Churchill, and he's famous for saying, we're all, we're all worms, but I'm a glow worm. <laughs> just thought that was funny. Anyway, um, we're, we're, just, we're just like fish. Or worms. That's the way you made us, God. He, who's he? It, it's just this kind of singular personification of Babylon, Chaldeans, Nebuchadnezzar, bad guys. He brings all of them up with a hook. And he drags them out of his net, and he gathers them in his dragnet, and so he rejoices and is glad. This is a picture of, of what seems to be the Chaldeans is doing whatever they very well please. And therefore, he sacrifices to his net. So we know that we're not talking about anybody good here. This is somebody that's worshiping the net, makes offerings to his dragnet. For by them, these, these fish and worms, he, he lives in luxury and his food is rich. Is he then to keep on emptying his net and mercilessly killing nations forever? So after recounting all these foundational truths that he knows about God, and applying them to the situation as he sees it, Habakkuk recognizes that the actual situation itself has not changed. It's still bad. Lloyd-Jones says, what does one do in such a case? Because I don't understand it, therefore I question whether God is righteous after all? No. 
if you still do not understand after applying the God-given methods, then talk to God about it. We make a mistake when we talk to ourselves and then to other people and ask, why, why this? Isn't this strange? We must do what the prophet did and take the problem to God and leave it with him. Isn't that what Jesus did on the night that he was betrayed? On the night he would give his life as a ransom for many? On the night he would be suspended between heaven and earth? Father, if it would be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. I don't understand it in a human sense. But if this is your way, I trust you. I trust you. Into your hands I commit my spirit. Your will, not my will be done. Jesus took the problem that in the flesh he did not understand and he brought it to God and he left it there and entrusted himself to his holy heavenly Father who would never command anything wrong. And so it is for us. In all of our sorrows, the Lord's still king. He's better. Oh, but God, help us to believe that. <laughs> More than all of our comforts, all of our conveniences, everything going the way we would like it to go. God's way and will, and He's better. Oh, but God, please help us to believe that. In every trial, every confounding mystery, the Lord is higher, greater, better. Oh, but God, make our hearts to believe this. Let's pray that now. Lord, I believe it's true that um, there exist troubling things within us and around us. Sin is part of our nature. And is always at work within us. We got little Chaldeans running around inside of us in our souls, doing havoc. And in the world around us, there are troubles and sins and evidences of fallenness. And we would ask, O oh Lord, again and again, would you restrain these things? Restrain sin within and without. Restrain evil in us and outside of us. 
we pray that you would keep your covenant promise that to those who turn to you and and entrust themselves to you, you will see to it that we, we walk in your ways and we make it to the end. There will be seasons when we are feeling like we're being run over by sins within and there will be seasons when it feels like we're being run over by sins outside of us and around us. But in Christ Jesus, we will not die. Strengthen our faith, we pray. We look to you, Lord Jesus. Strengthen us in our faith. We ask this in your name. Amen. Let's stand together.